Vodka. Vodka. o'clock. Hey there, everyone. It's Amber Love, and you're listening to Vodka O'Clock Podcast from AmberOnMath.com. Don't forget, we are labeled as an explicit website and podcast, even though it's usually just good fun. But just to give you a little warning. So first of all, I just want to, you know, thank everyone for their patience while I had a few weeks off um, in between episodes. And part of that reason is because we had the annual Superhero Weekend fundraiser at Comic Fusion, which was a great success. We had so many amazing people come out and support us at the new Comic Fusion. We've been at the new store for about a year now because we moved uh, right after the last Superhero Weekend. And uh, so we did great this year. We raised over $4,000, and all of those proceeds went to Safe in Hunterdon. And, uh, you know, again, many thanks to all of the artists, publishers, and writers that donated their services to us. We had about maybe 30 or 40 cosplayers come out to the store, which was amazing. It was, we had such great photo shoots. And uh, thanks for the, to the photographers who took care of that for us as well, and lots of local retailers and merchants that uh, helped give us discounts on food and everything. It was a great weekend, and we had, you know, pretty nice weather for a change here in Jersey. So then, of course, I went off to New York Comic Con, where I contracted the Con Plague, which is why I sound terrible. This might be a little bit of a short episode if I can... uh, you know, I'll try to try to hang in there with you guys. And um, but I had the delightful opportunity to meet tonight's guest in person in in IRL, as the kids say. So Brad Abraham is here to talk about mixtape. Welcome to Vodka Clock. Thanks for having me. So um, you know, we've been like BFFs over on the Twitter. We have, we have. <laughs> and um, so today we're talking about mixtape and probably some non-comic book things like food, because in our conversations we discovered that we're foodies, and um, we'll talk about whatever comes up. All right, sounds good. So, anyway, sorry as I have to keep clearing my throat, folks. I'm so sorry. Um, Mixtape is set around, uh, in 1990, I believe, where cassettes were still dominating the music scene. That was back as I was first starting as a college radio DJ. Yes, indeed I was. So even if you, uh, you, you even have like a character mention, I think, at one point, that CDs weren't home recordable yet. No, they weren't. No. They, um, so people were still using uh, cassettes to, to dub their music. And uh, it, that was always just like a fun thing to do, just a fun thing as, as the teenagers do and later on in college years. Um, I did that for countless road trips. You know, it was just because uh, you need certain driving music. You there's do. There's, you do. there's music that you listen to while you study, and there's music that you listen to while you write, and then there's driving music, which is its entirely own beast. Yeah, it's true. And, I mean, that was sort of... I guess for a generation, I won't, I won't date us too much by saying our generation, but our generation, yeah. where, yeah, if you were going on a car trip of any significant period of time, you, you need a music to play because radio, because this is back in the day when people listened to terrestrial radio, you'd only, once you get far enough away from your departure point, you'd lose reception. You could either scan through the radio stations and try to find something that was in the same genre, I guess, as what you wanted to listen to, or you just pop in a tape, and you know the the art of making a, a tape, a, a mixtape, I guess, for uh, you know for for driving, uh, or even just for personal use, or I think most importantly, or at least the reason people seem to have this romance with mixtapes is if you like someone, uh, you know, a boy or a girl, and you really like them, but you didn't quite know how to articulate it, you would go through your music collection, you would pick a bunch of songs that you really liked that meant a lot to you. You record them onto a cassette, and you'd you'd, you'd make a you know a nice little cover for it, and and you give it to them, and you'd be sort of trying to say to them, "This is what I think of you. This is what I think of us." And yes, you, you sort you sort of used it was that whole process of I guess using other people's lyrics, other people's music to kind of communicate a feeling, and that and that that whole experience has kind of gone the way of the dodo, I guess, because now people just can whip together an, a iTunes playlist or something like that within a very short period of time, where a mixtape took hours to do. You couldn't just, you know, click a button and assign songs or something. You had to sit there with 
You had to uh, listen to the whole song. You did. Out. Yeah. You did. And, and then, and then, if you were clever and you had two different uh, decks going, you could fade. But that was, you know. I was never that clever. I was never that high tech. I, I, I didn't work in. I didn't do school time in a radio station like you did. I guess you got to do, use all the high tech stuff. Yeah, I did. Yeah. It yeah. was. It was not high tech, by the way. <laughs> I mean, I was. <laughs> well, work- that's a, I, don't, I don't think anything in 1990-91 was really high yeah, tech. No, I mean, I was still editing um, commercials on reel to reel and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, well that's, I think that's, and that's something that people nowadays, you know, if you live through it, you kind of forget how difficult it was to do stuff like that. Um, and there's a, I guess, a, a whole other generation coming up behind us that have never experienced it firsthand. No, and they, um, like you said, it's just so much faster because it's just, you know, bang, 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 you, you click and drag your tracks. And it is. And you've got it built, and, you know, and even when you, you talked about, uh, making cover art. I certainly did that. I got out my colored pencils and I drew, you know, like I remember like taking an actual existing cassette and tracing it to get the, the size of it right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, then designing a cover. A friend of mine made really amazing like little photo collages. Like they'd go through music magazines or whatever and they would just get in there with their little exacto blade and they would, they would cut things out and they would paste them to the sleeve, so it actually looked like almost a semi-professional job. And pretty beautiful, I, I, nice. I, I never could figure out how they had that much time to do it, but I guess if you're recording 45 minutes to 60 minutes of, of audio, you have time to kind of sort through magazines and cut pictures out while you're laying the tracks down. Well, it's funny because um, maybe this was just a, a, a chick thing, but mm-hmm. all you know, like I think all the girls I knew, we all had uh, had either poster boards or bulletin boards of collages. Like it was just something you cut stuff out of magazines and you glued it and glittered it and whatever, and it would always do, be like quippy sayings and you know. So do, do people do people not do that anymore? I have no idea. Oh, I'm so old. I don't know. Because I, I remember high school. And people would have their lockers, and their locker doors would be open. And some of them, again, usually the girls, would have just almost these really intricate collages of stuff you just described. It would be magazine pictures and stickers for various bands or movies or whatever. And there would actually be little you know, pictures that I guess they cut out of photo albums or just pictures of their friends kind of, kind of stuck in amongst that. And, I mean, it was almost like this very strange expressionistic personal form of art that at the end of the year was all just kind of pulled out and thrown into a uh, into a garbage can, you know, as you were leaving school. And I don't think anybody really saved them. That's actually kind of sad now that I think of yeah, that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if they do that. I have no I, I don't have, um, like, any connection with teenagers <laughs> in my life, so I, I literally can't relate to them one bit. I mean, the most I get is seeing, like, commercials for CW shows, and they give me the hives. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know any teenagers firsthand either, although through mixtape, strangely enough, a large number of the readers actually seem to be teenagers or people in their early 20s who weren't even there, I guess you could say, as a firsthand experience of the period the book set in, or if, it, if they were, they were born very late into us. So they have no real conscious or waking memory of mixtapes and, and things like that and MTV back when they played music videos. But Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and uh, and that's been sort of you know my experience. Anytime somebody of that age who's come up to me, like they, some people connect to me at Comic Con as well, and I was kind of asking them questions. Like, well, what is it about a, a mixtape that you're cool? Really... They're like into their dad's music, you know. <laughs> some 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 actually did say that they said that they had no firsthand experience of it, but their dad played a lot of Pixies and Smiths and Depeche Mode on those long car trips, and I immediately flash back to my parents who played a lot of Beatles and Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin on our car trips, which was my introduction to the music that kind of preceded, you know, my generation, I guess my era, as as, it, as, as you can call it that. So it's almost like this uh, form of subconscious communication through music. You know, your parents communicated to you with what they liked and what they made you listen to, and it, it, it kind of germinated from there. So, my, I mean, my mer- earliest musical memories are of bands like the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel and really through my parents. And now there's a whole other generation of people who have kind of come of age listening to the music that their parents forced them to listen to. Only, in a lot of cases, it's music that you actually kind of like. So your first introduction to it. And at the same time, I think 
another universal thing, which is something that I also try to latch onto in mixtape, is that it's the music that you discover with your friends that is the music that really sticks with you. And you can see, now, I can see my parents sort of, and, and their friends back when they were in, their, in high school, and I can almost pinpoint the exact type of music they were into at the time, and it's usually pretty correct. The, um, the new phenomenon, and this is something that I do, and, uh, you know, again, it's because of the changes in technology, but aside from doing the playlist that would be like a mixtape, um, one of the things I do is I'll be tweeting, like, a song of the day or something, you know, like a song that just, like, feels like the right mood for me that day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so much easier to do when you find something on YouTube or, um, like, I have the Shazam app on my phone. So, yeah. if, you know, for example, I'm, like, listening to something I'm familiar with, but, you know, that's on my playlist in the car. Yeah. With Shazam, it has a really easy sharing uh, yeah. shortcut. So you can immediately share to Facebook and Twitter. And let your friends know. And let, yeah, and it's just, it's one of those things where I'm like, I know I'm not the only one who does this because I see everybody doing it. Yeah, and it's sort of the same principle, I guess, as a mixtape was back in the day, or I guess in the late 90s, early 2000s, a mix CD. You know, you're almost making a grand personal statement about yourself just by virtue of the music you're listening to that you want to share with other people. And that's something I think that has changed. You know, the, the means of communicating technology-wise may have changed, but I don't think that that impulse to kind of share these things that mean something to us has changed or ever will change. I mean, if right. whatever whatever the future brings, I think there's always going to be people sharing that kind of that that bit of culture. And you even see that with look at comic books and the whole geek culture thing, as they're calling it now. I mean. Years ago, when I was going to Con-Cons, when I was much younger, it was not nearly as popular as it is now. It was not nearly as diverse a group as it is now. And I think there's almost something about music and comic books together that uh, that they kind of inform one another. At least that's been my experience. That's true. And in fact, there's even crossover when you have bands like Stone Power and My Chemical Romance, uh, you know, uh, Gerard Way. Uh, the mm-hmm. crossover of people who... Even Tori Amos, they yeah. have talent in the music industry, but they have this, you know, side hobby of comics, and somehow they, they bring them out, and that's, uh, you know, definitely, it, it can be a really cool thing, you know. Yeah. And, 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 and it's not always stamping their name on it. <laughs> no, not at all, but I mean, I remember reading, um, you know, the Sandman, the Neil, Neil Gaiman Sandman books back in the 90s, and... When I think I think Tori Amos wrote a uh, introduction to one of the trade collections or something like that, and that was the first case I can really remember of um, sort of music and comic books kind of coming together. And you realize, oh, okay, so these artists, these musicians, have an appreciation for this art form, and, and vice versa. Neil Gaiman having an appreciation for music and talking quite frankly about music through his, his work directly or just in interviews about it. So I think there's always been a connection there, given, which is interesting, because I think maybe because music is such a, well, obviously it's an audio format, whereas comics are such a visual format, they kind of seem to blend together. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, Gaiman, and as we're talking about this, is uh, married to Amanda Palmer. Mm -hmm. So uh, music is definitely part of his everyday life. Um, But it's funny that when, um, after I picked up the books from you at Mm -hmm. Comic-Con, I, you know, like I said, I got this, like, horrific cold, and I was sitting in bed, and I just wanted something on the television. I wasn't really paying attention to anything, because I was kind of delirious. Mm. And Perks of Being a Wallflower came on, and I had never read it or seen it, so I'm like, all right, well, I really like Emma Watson. Let me put this on. And uh, I was, like, vaguely had an idea that it was just kind of like a, you know, I don't know what generation this is, millennial generation Mm -hmm. um, bonding movie. And and as I watched it, it was so funny because they are exactly what mixtape is about. Yeah. And it just reminded me of Pretty in Pink, actually, the most. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, it was just, I don't know, like sometimes the universe, I guess, just like hands this sort of 
thing right in your in your lap. I'm like, I can't believe that this movie is about exactly <laughs> what I just finished reading. Yeah. <laughs> um, you've got all these characters who come together, and they uh, they have different involvement in music and share it amongst themselves. Yeah. And that's how yeah. they become friends. Yeah. And and like mixtape, I, I I I was introduced to Perks of Being a Wallflower the movie mostly because people had recommended it to me. They'd seen it and they said, "Have you seen the Perks of Being a Wallflower? You should really check it out. It's totally sort of touching on what you're what you're doing with mixtape." And I mean, I I kind of live in this weird pop culture bubble where a lot of stuff that's really popular with people just escapes me. Not through any design, just the fact that my head's in a different space and. So I, I, I was not aware of the of person being a wallflower at all. I just knew it was, it was a movie. Oh, okay, it's based on a book. And I finally sat down and watched it, and I went, oh, okay, I guess we're kind of drawing water from the same well. And that actually compelled me to go pick up the book and read it, just because I wanted to see what I'd missed. And uh, the book, it, they don't, they're not really specific about it in the movie, but the book actually does take place in like, 1991, 1992, which is a time that I guess, you know, you and I are both familiar with, but that's sort of in this in the same uh I guess sort of the same wheelhouse as mixtape. Right. And that that actually surprised me about that movie because I was expecting it to be a much more contemporary piece. Mm-hmm. And when they I, they started talking about these bands, I was like, okay, well maybe they're just kids who think that those bands are cool. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that it really was supposed to be set back then. Yeah. And I mean mixtape, I it, I didn't know what to expect from it because, right. you know, just from our Twitter interaction and everything, I thought, okay, well, it's somehow comic books that incorporate music. Yeah. And one of the things that surprised me was to discover that the the four issues are entwined, but it's not a traditional continuity. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you could conceivably read them in any order because yeah. they're the, each issue is a vignette of how this group of friends has a common ground in music. So, um, what inspired you to do this type of storytelling instead of something very sequential? Um, well, I wanted it to be like a mixtape. I, I wanted each story that to tell, I guess each, each issue to tell a different story and not be so dependent on a continuity or a narrative. And the fact is, yeah, you could read them out of order. In fact, given that I sold out of my copies of mixtape number one, at Comic Con, I I went to great pains to explain to them that you could almost start with issue four, read that, and then go back and read the other issues. I I wanted them to be um, individual stories, each one taken from a different point of view. Each each of the characters, each of our five characters, gets their moment in the spotlight in the first arc of the first four issues, and the fifth issue, which is we're just finishing up the art on right now. And I wanted each story to kind of zero in on one character and have the other characters be support. So the main character in the first issue, Jim, is, you know, he maybe appears in one or two panels of the second issue. He doesn't appear in the third issue at all. He only appears in a couple pages in the fourth issue and kind of that whole revolving door kind of thing. So that was a reason to do it in in, in that way. Um, And also I wanted it to, I wanted each story to have kind of a different feel. Uh, if that makes sense, um, through, I guess, the voice of the characters, but also just the look. I mean, there are subtle differences, I think, in each issue, that the, the, the way the story is told is being changed. The number of panels per page has changed somewhat. Some are more dialogue-heavy than others. Um, you know, and that, that, a lot of that was just, I think, me trying to get a, a, a footing as writing a comic book. I mean, this, I've been reading comic books for years. This is my first attempt to write one, and I come from a film background, film and television, so that's kind of been my wheelhouse for the last 15 years. So I didn't really want to tell something that was in a specific narrative, because I was more interested, less in an overall story, but more just in those, I guess those little character moments that I think we've all experienced over the course of our lives, no matter where you grew up, what your age is, or your background, I think we've all been in those situations where you know, we've been to the house party, and there's been the the guy or a girl that we've that we've been with, but there's another one there who we really like deep down, and we're trying to make something happen with. There's the you know the the, the what we talked off about off at the top, the whole road trip thing, where you're 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 driving to a different town or a different place for some reason, whether it's to see a band or 
buy some music. Because this is back in the time when there was no internet. So if you wanted to get that obscure album, you had to go to an actual record store to to uh, do that. You know? Right, and that's when you know bootlegs really were. Uh, a prized treasure because yeah. they were people who were somehow recording concerts and then they those recordings got circulated and, yeah. and this is yeah. you know but now there's yeah. like just bit torrents and youtube yeah. and, and and that was where another aspect of maybe not mixtapes but just cassette tapes came in handy is if if somebody had an album you didn't have it or you wanted to find it, they'd just say well give me a tape i'll dub it for you so i mean even now just looking through boxes of old cassette tapes that I still have with me. A, a good half of them are, are recordings of things that other people made or I made myself. That was just kind of how you experienced music. And for me, in the 90s, living in a small town up in Canada, there wasn't a lot of options music-wise if you're looking for something outside of the mainstream, outside of that whole top 40 thing. And that's kind of what I've been trying to capture uh, with mixtape. And you're right, they could all be read out of sequence, but I think particularly in the fourth and especially in the fifth issue, which will be out early next year, as you're going to see, that it really has been kind of telling one larger story. It's the, I like saying that the, the, the story is sort of in the margins of the issues. And even people who read the fourth issue came up to me and they said, you know, after reading the fourth issue, um, I had to go back and read the first three, and I started noticing all these little things I hadn't before, little things happening in the, and the backgrounds of panels and things that kind of informed what happens later on in the story. And it's all building to something of a climax with uh, issue number five, which uh, ends the first arc and, and hopefully will uh, you know, make people kind of look back at the whole five books uh, to date in a different light. Well, I have to ask because this is something that uh, I know writers do kind of uh, all the time, sometimes subconsciously, but mm-hmm. which which character are you in mixtape? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've been asked that so many times. I'm and, sure and you have, because yeah. it's just a natural thing to, you know, there's a, you know, there's, there's characters like this, and they're all very individual, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the characters themselves are, are becoming confident in who they are as people, yeah. so this, I had no idea this was your first uh, comic book project, oh. so... Uh, I would never have guessed. So, well, you know, here you are. The, as The big question, which one of these is based on you? Yeah, yeah. So the big answer for that is, uh, and it's going to sound like a non-answer, but it's not, uh, is they all are based on me in one way okay. or another. Um, I, I see a bit of myself in all the, all these characters. Um, and for people who haven't read the book uh, or aren't aware of it, there's there's five of them. There's... There's Jim, who's sort of the, 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 the loner, would-be rebel type. There's uh, Terry, who's that that guy everybody knows who just totally geeks out about whether it's music or movies or comic books or whatever. There's uh, Lorelai, who's sort of the, I guess, a little more quiet, introspective, artistic type. Uh, there's Noel, who's... Not quite a jock, kind of more of that preppy type. You know, the guy with who comes from a privileged background, yeah, has a lot of money. The rich kid with the car. Yeah, yeah. And then there's Siobhan, who's the who's, who's sort of the, the the mystery girl, the girl who's been away for uh, a, a year in Europe, who's kind of returned to um, to her hometown and trying to, to to settle back into it. And she's sort of the object of desire for Jim, who we meet in the first issue. But when I say they're all based on me in a way, I think. Just in my experience as a as a film writer, as a TV writer, just in general, is I think the key to the good writing or successful writing, or no matter what the genre is, I think there has to be that element of authenticity. There has to be that element of truth and honesty to it that you you can tell you know you you can tell if something kind of rings false. And when I was coming up with the characters, I, I wanted to put a little bit of myself into all of them, and they all I think very much represent me at various points in my life, and even who I am right now. I mean, with Siobhan, she, you know, the, the, the you know, back, back in her own town and everything like that, after a, a period away, I, not to go too deep into my biography, but I mean, we moved, my family and I, we moved around a lot when I was younger. I mean, when people say, where are you from? I can't really give a straight answer because I think I've lived in about a dozen, dozen towns or cities between uh, when I was born and when I, when I finished college. Um, so I've always felt that 
not really having a place to really settle in and call home. Um, and with a character like Terry, who's sort of the, the, the big music geek, I mean, I think we can all empathize with just being totally obsessed with something, whether it's music or comics. And he's kind of the part of me that just likes to geek out over those things. And, you know, Jim's the guy who's, you know, likes to be by himself, quiet, a little more solitary, which is me as well, not the most social of butterflies. Um, you know, Noel, the uh, sort of the preppy rich kid, uh, I don't think I was ever rich or, or preppy. I mean, we weren't starving, but we weren't, you know, going on ski vacations or anything like that every year. But there was that, for for Noel, um, you know, his big burden, as you're going to find in the next issues, is, uh, I guess, that sense of expectation that tends to get thrust upon you by your parents, by your community, by who you are. You're expected to go off and do these great things. And you're not quite sure whether that's what you want to do or not. And, I mean, I've, we've all gone through those periods of self-examination with work and yeah, careers absolutely. and whatnot. And, you yeah. know, am, am, I, am I doing the right thing? I mean, I've, I've frequently been... I'm frequently like that, even now, even after X number of years of doing what I do for a living. I still wonder if I've just, you know, if, if this has all been a big joke and if I've just been hoodwinking people for so long. And Lorelai, the quiet, artistic type, is me as well, in the fact that she's sort of quiet, artistic type, um, which I've always been. I've always been more content, I think, uh, you know, reading a book or something like that. And anytime I'm invited over to a party or whatever, I inevitably gravitate over towards the wall or the corner, or if they have their, if they're a little bit more old school in their home and they have a, uh, a shelf with some CDs or whatever, I'm usually examining those and kind of forgetting everybody else is there. I'm kind of flipping through people's albums and quietly judging them on their musical taste. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> um, before I forget, uh, please tell us about your art team and, and all the collaborators involved here. Well, this is kind of an international production. I mean, I'm from Canada originally. I live in New York now. Um, and uh, Jock and uh, Gervasio are both based in Buenos Aires, Argentina, um, which was kind of a surprise, not at all what I had expected. Uh, when I was first putting the idea of mixtape together, the most important thing, obviously, for me was finding an artist, but finding the right artist. And I had various looks in mind for the characters and just looks in the book. And that came through reading a lot of comic books, um, seeing what was out there. And I, I really became a fan of people like uh, Ryan Kelly and uh, Nikki Cook and uh, Adrian Tamine's work. So it's very, it's, you know, it's, it, it's illustrated, but there's, there's almost a sense of proportion to all the characters. They don't look exaggerated or expressionistic or anything like that. Yeah, you can tell that it's a that it's a slice of life type of book. Even Jeff McComsey has a little bit of the style too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Um, but yeah, it's you know the characters don't look like they were just drawn from a template and dropped in with changed hairstyles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and when when I was looking for artists, uh, these guys in Buenos Aires came across my uh, were, were brought to my attention and. I, I, I was invited to, to uh, look at their portfolio, which I did, and I, I like their I like the look of their stuff. I wasn't really sure it was going to work for mixtape, just because me being me, I had a very specific idea in my head as what I thought it should look like. And what they ended up doing, without me even asking them, was they they sent me over some character sketches, just some design work on of the characters, because I'd given them the script. Uh, to look at, and they actually did character designs for all the, char- the the five characters, and they did some thumbnails of the first few pages, and they even did a couple completed pages just so I could see what they could bring to the material. When I finally saw it there, I realized that they were the right guys for the book because they, they they seemed to get it, which was another surprise because I figured, well, you know, Buenos Aires, I I don't know much about Argentina, um, and I was my main concern was, are they going to get the book, are they going to get things like house parties when the parents are away and road trips and heading by to the nearby college and cruising the record stores and things like that. And both Jock and Gervais are my age, roughly, and they were had really been able to bring a lot to the book, I think, probably more than I would have been able to on my own had I been illustrating it myself. I mean, I can't illustrate to save my life, but I think they bring so much to 
the, the material. I mean, I'm constantly having people come up and saying how much they like the art, particularly. They may not mention the writing. I mean, I think that's a given, but the art really tends to draw them in. And I think they really came up with an aesthetic that works for the book in a way that I wasn't expecting. And they said, what kind of style do you have in mind for the book? I think I must have said something really pretentious, like I want it to sound like, I want it to look like Nevermind Sounds, man. I want it to look like a, I want it to look like, a, I want it to look like an album from the, the day. And they went off and they came back with something, which is almost this Xeroxed, like a Xerox machine with too much ink in it, where it's just black, blacks, white, whites. Right. Thick, thick lines, which is very much a 90s aesthetic. I said, you know, I want it to look kind of like something of the period. I didn't want it to look too slick or too modern. I want it to have that rough DIY edge, like, a, like an old zine. Which was what websites were before websites, kids. Yeah, exactly. You know, just something very personal and very, very, uh, very specific to the period. And then my my uh, I have to mention David, uh, who's also my letterer. He's based over in Spain, so I'm the I'm the only uh, non-Spanish speaking member of the team. He managed to pull everything together quite nicely. So did that um, did that language alone? have any barriers for you or what was it just like not even a problem it wasn't a problem i mean they're all they were they're all fluent in english and i'm i'm pretty my english is okay so it's just okay so i think it's it, i think as long as i've been able to communicate effectively to them uh, it's been fine and, and that kind of gets back into my background as a screenwriter i mean writing a comic book script and writing a screenplay they share a lot of similarities in the fact that you're really, what you're really doing at a most basic level is communicating to the artists, to the graphics people, the letterer, what goes where and where it, and, and what it's supposed to look like. And if anything, I, I try to kind of come up with a, a, maybe not a new way of writing a, a comic book script, but just a way that I felt I could communicate enough information to Jock and Gervasio that they could run with. I didn't want to get too specific because I, li- I like it when they come back with stuff that I hadn't thought of. It doesn't always work, but a lot of a lot of the I think finest touches in the book are things that they brought that I never even thought of. And that's been the real joy in doing the book is being able to work with artists. I mean, my, like I said, my first time writing a comic book is one thing, but my first time working with artists is something else. And to see how much they bring to the table and I wouldn't say it gives me a newfound appreciation for artists because I've always had that appreciation for them, but it maybe a bit more of an understanding. And with each issue, it's become a little easier to write because I know that they're going to be able to bring something that I hadn't thought of. Well, what's your relationship uh, been like with Arden Publishing? Who is Arden, by the way? And you know, how well, did you get get involved there? Well, I was involved with them uh, for the first couple of issues. Um, and it kind of went to uh, a point where uh, they'd released the first issue. First issue did really well. I mean, as far as, uh, as well as, I guess, a, 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 a black and white comic book about music in the 90s from an unknown creative team would go. I mean, I know we did sell it our, our uh, initial run. Um, and then it just beca- it got to a point where um, there were some delays along the way. Uh, not entirely anybody's fault, just the nature of the business and the difficulty in getting a book out on a on a month to month basis. And we uh, talked about it, and uh, because they felt bad because it was just a, a case of not a lot of money available to print the next books in the run. And we decided that for the for the I guess the long term health of the book um, that I would take it on myself to release it independently. Uh, outside of a publisher and outside of Diamond, which has been difficult, although I'm not unconvinced that it was the wrong decision to make. Okay, yeah, so I wanted to ask you about your distribution model and, and how it's going, because um, uh, a couple friends of mine, uh, Josh Finney and Kat Roca, who run their own company, uh, Zero One Publishing, they are very anti-Diamond, mm-hmm. and I still have plenty of friends that... Uh, will do whatever they can, even by virtue of like things like kickstarting their own yeah. funding, just to guarantee a publisher 
a certain number of sales because that publisher is already in Diamond and accepted and it's, it's still hard to get in there. So, you know, and at the same time, they're doing their own hustling at every convention and they're doing, you know, running their own websites. They can, you know, literally bankrolling all of the time, effort and money and everything um, for a book that is under a publisher. Mm. So it seems like it seems like a really different game in publishing nowadays where you know before the publisher took care of things. yeah yeah and yeah. now they're kind of just like well we'll help you print it and we'll keep copies in a warehouse yeah and i mean that's kind of been the experience that a lot of people i've talked to uh about it as well is you know the the role of the comic book publisher in today's environment which has changed so much over in recent years, even since in the last year and a half or so. I feel like I know a, doing a lot of it or the lion's share of the work myself, um, I think I have a better sense of what's involved and maybe a better appreciation for all the things a publisher can do. But, yeah, you're, you're right. It, even at the end of the day, whether you have a publisher or not, you're still going to have to go out there and hustle and call the stores and ask them to stock your book, and you're going to have to go to the conventions and spread the word that way and sell it and do your own media. I mean, the, the publisher, like you said, will they will print your book and they will have it in a warehouse and if and when stores want to order it, they will ship them out. And that's really where it ends. There's not a lot of, I guess, a support network. And especially now with the Internet, it's almost expected that you be on Facebook or Twitter or, you know, just letting people know the book exists. And... Uh, you know, and I can only speak to my experience. And with mixtape, uh, I, I really got my first sense of it at New York Comic Con just last week, where people had heard of the book, but they hadn't been able to find it anywhere, or they bought the first issue and they wanted to know where the other ones were. Uh, I had a couple stores come up to me and say, "Hey, you know, we ordered the, we stocked that five copies of issue one it sold out we ordered another five those sold out we tried to order more and they were all sold out of the distributor and it's kind of i guess in a weird way reassuring that people remember the book or at least aware of it or they see the logo on a sign that that kind of draws them in but at the same time you know you're kind of doing all the heavy lifting yourself um which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, I always figure that, you know, somebody's got to do this stuff, it might as well be me, because at least that way I know I'll be able to get it done and get books out to people. And, I mean, I just returned from dropping some books off at a local store that wanted copies, so a, a lot of stuff on the ground. Uh, but it's been getting a little easier. I think the awareness is starting to get out there, and I just got word, just as the con was ending, that uh, the First issue, at least right now, and the other two are are going to be showing up on uh, iTunes in the iBooks store as a digital download. And I think for a lot of people who like their comics the newfangled 21st century digital way, then then you know if people say, well, how can I get this book? Are you available? Where are you available? And sort of make it easier for them to get it. Which is kind of funny that a book that's about the analog experience of a mixtape would have a digital footprint. I'm still trying to trying to get my head around it, that. It's hurting your brain. It is hurting my brain, yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, so where can people easily find you? Like, I mean, are you doing any more shows this, this year? Um, well, if you're in the New York area, I'm going to be... Uh, I'm Worked out the details today. I'll be doing a, uh, a signing at the uh, at Carmine Street Comics down Carmine Street in the Village on Friday, November twenty second okay. for uh, mixtapes one, two, three. But it's also going to be sort of the official release date of mixtape number four, uh, which we did a, a limited run of them at New York Comic Con just as a as a Comic Con exclusive. But it's actually not going to be officially available uh, right until then. Um, if digitally, it's on iTunes. Um, if you just do a, a uh, search in the window for mixtape comic, and it'll it should take you right there. And uh, you can you can buy the book through uh, online hard copies of the book through Indie Planet, 
although I am in the process of setting up a, a, a store through my own website where people will be able to buy them direct from me, so if they want them signed or anything. And we're rolling them out to uh, other stores, and I'll be making announcements as to where they're, where they're showing up there. And a lot of stores with an online presence as well, so even if you can't get to this particular store or a store with any great ease, they'll be able to send the books to you. All right, well, that's good. So um, when you're not making comics, what are you doing? What you know? What's your, you know, the balance? Is there any balance, or is it just like all work all the time? Oh, uh, it's pretty much all work all the time. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm if I'm if I'm if I'm not writing the comic, I'm doing TV or film work. Um, it's uh, that's sort of the, the the bread and butter of my uh, of my daily grind. Um, and I've done stuff for the Sci-Fi Channel. I've done some independent features. Um, I had a film that just premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival called Fresh Meat, which is a, a comedy about uh, suburban cannibals that was filmed in New Zealand, of all places, with a largely New Zealand, actually an entirely New Zealand production. That was just one of the weird things about the, the global world of the film business, where a, a Canadian can write a movie about Maori cannibals. That sounds pretty gross, but it's a comedy. You said so. it is. A, it is a comedy. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 just been one of those. It was just one of those weird stories of you know how you write a screenplay and it just winds up on the desk of somebody who has the means to get it made, and they just the desk just happens to be on the other side of the planet, you know, you know, like a, a day ahead of us. So it's been uh, kind of a trip, and that's sort of been my day to day thing. That and just you know trying to stay out of trouble, I guess. <laughs> That's definitely a good plan. Yes. Um, so, now, if I recall, you said that, uh, is it you that likes to cook? Because I was talking to your, your table mate, Dave Parkin, who yeah. was a delight as well to talk to, and all of us were talking about food and yeah. organic farmer's markets and stuff like that. So I don't remember, was it you or your, your wife who cooks? Oh, I because I work from home, I pretty much do most of the cooking myself. Um, and yeah, that's that's right. We were talking about that because um, because I work from home, uh, I, I keep telling myself I have no excuse not to get dinner going myself. Um, she works out in the real world, not like the shut-in writer type. So when uh, it's nice for me, at least. It's uh, I feel like I'm you know, being productive. Well, that's good. <laughs> Not just sitting around all. Or you know, when she comes home, she's she's got dinner waiting for her. But it's also good just in this weird, almost zen kind of way, where at a certain point, I know I have to stop working or stop whatever I'm doing. I have to go into the kitchen. I have to start taking things out of the vegetable drawer and start chopping them up. Like I, I cannot. I have to get away from my desk. Yeah, you're com- at some you know, point. You unplug. Yeah, because I think that is important. I think you, you hear these, you, you hear writers talk about, oh, you have to write every day. I'm writing all the time. I, tr- I try to keep pretty regular, what I consider to be normal business hours, right at 9 a.m. till 6, Monday to Friday. And that's kind of my writing time. That's my work time. But in the evenings and the weekend when my wife's home, I like to unplug and unwind and spend time with her. I don't like, you know, being. Sitting in the in in the in the corner of my office, writing while she's watching TV or something like that. I've seen that happen to too many people, too many couples for too many years, where it's almost two people living under the same roof yet they're living separate lives. So from right, from, the, from the moment she walks out the door to the moment she comes back, the the apartment is basically my office. So whether it's working, like writing stuff, or business calls or meetings or, or whatever. That's during normal business hours, but then come six o'clock, it's time to stop with the writing and start with the making the dinners and the washing the dishes and doing the laundry and things like that. And I think it's important to be able to step away from it and to let those ideas that you've had simmer and I guess percolate, almost like cooking, because really, what is writing but just a form of cooking only, I guess, for the brain. You know, you, you season things. Sometimes you need to let things sit for a bit. You need to go back to them, you know, add a little bit of flavor here and there, but not just constantly hover, constantly be hovering over it, trying to, you know, keep making things work. And even on the weekends, I'm usually pretty good for taking the weekends off from writing entirely. Because just because you're sitting at your desk, does, 
you're not sitting at your desk doesn't mean you're not writing. The, the, the process is an ongoing thing, and things will occur to me if I'm watching TV or on the weekend or whatever, and I will I have my little uh, you know, old-school notepad of post-it notes, and if an idea occurs to me, I'll, I'll, I'll write it down to post-it note, I'll just stick it to my desk. So come Monday when I when I uh, sit down to, to pick up where I left off, I usually have a desk covered with post-it notes, which is uh, right. a pretty pretty stark image now that I think about it. <laughs> mine, mine, it I, I'll clean my desk once in a while, and it lasts for about a day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, then I have to, I don't know, then I'll unpack a bag from, you know, traveling, or I'll open the mail, and <laughs> it's just like it's immediately a mess. Yeah, um, and I mean the whole cooking thing or whatever. It's it's just a nice, um, it's just a nice way to kind of, I guess, be creative in a different sort of way. And I guess I just I just enjoyed it. it. It's it's nice to be able to step away from work, right? And not be one of these people who's just constantly working, constantly writing. Because I find that to be a real recipe for burning out. And that almost happened at the beginning of my career. Yeah, I don't see how you could not. I, I really don't understand the people who do that. They're you know, if you follow these, you know, folks on Twitter and they're oh, yeah, yeah. two o'clock in the morning and they're like still writing. Yeah, which I think is baloney. <laughs> I think they just have it set up as an auto tweet. I'm still writing. Still <laughs> writing. Like, and really, you go through these, you go through their timeline. I'm like, wow, you've been writing for 38 hours straight. That's pretty. That's a pretty impressive. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I, I think writing is, especially through social media, things like Twitter and Facebook. Um, it, it's almost become people have been sort of turning into a spectator sport when it, I think it really needs to be just you and whatever page is in front of you, whether it's paper or whether it's a computer screen or whatever. I mean, when I started writing professionally full time, it was because I got hired to write uh, the Robocop Prime Directives series that aired on sci fi about 13 years ago. And just by the nature of that project, that meant I was essentially li- living and writing in the basement of my house up in Toronto for about nine months straight. Very rarely was able to go out just because there was so much work to do and uh, so many deadlines to write. It was essentially an eight-hour miniseries in, within a very short period of time. Myself and a, a writing partner, it was, the, the breaks were few and far between, and that's where that whole, that whole you know, question of burnout um, uh, uh, raised its head where you know, by the time I was done that job I was just so exhausted the, the thought of picking up pen and starting something new was was you know I almost couldn't do it and that's when I began to really worry about you know I want to, if, am I going to do this for a long term or is this just a one-off thing or is there, I'm going to make a career of this and I found that I needed to compartmentalize things and separate my work mode from my social mode and to not forget to go out and hang out with friends and go out to bars or see movies or whatever. Just try to live some sort of life because that gets back to what I was talking, we were talking about earlier. It's about the whole thing of authenticity and believability and if you're just sitting in your office writing all day you're not actually out experiencing life, what exactly are you writing about? Yeah, exactly. I... Yeah, because then how do you have those experiences other than the Internet? Yeah, yeah and, yeah. I, and I, I think there's almost a little too much of that going on. A little frightening, almost, yeah. Yeah, I mean, my my favorite writer uh, is a guy named Joe Lansdale. And, oh. and he said something about writing that I don't think I've ever forgotten. I I I should have written it and stuck it on my corkboard. He, he does but, give great advice, whether or not you've ever read his work. I suggest yeah. following him just for his advice. It's yeah, fo- follow him on Twitter, follow him on Facebook. On Facebook but, yeah, yeah. but he said, um, when talking about writing, uh, he said, you can tell when a virgin is writing a sex scene. <laughs> okay. And, yeah. and, as a, and as a side to that, and he, he was using it to describe writing a fight scene. He said, you can tell when a virgin's writing a sex scene. You can tell when a person's writing a fight scene and they've never been in a fight. Yeah. Because it just does not ring true. And you can tell they're just kind of basing it off of sex scenes they've watched or things, fights that they've seen, but they've actually never been in that situation. In either case, where, you know, the heart is racing, the adrenaline's pumping, and 
you can tell it, it just does not ring true. And I think that you know, for a writer, your, your best tool is tools are still experience. It's still getting out there and living your life, and not being kind of closed off from it. And that's sort of what I wanted to do with mixtape was just take these experiences that I've had, that you've had, that each and every one of us has had or will have at some point in our lives, and try to celebrate them. The, the, not so much the, the big party or the big game, but what happens after the big party. What happens when you and your buddies are out smoking cigarettes behind the bleachers while everybody else is at the big game. Those, those moments within the bigger moments, those are the ones that I think, for me, at least stick with me more now than the so-called big moments of my high school and college age. Now, um, since there is so much more activity on things like Twitter, um, and we just survived, got our, our, I don't know, I prefer to think of it as a stay of execution of our own uh, American government shutdown Mm -hmm. nonsense bureaucracy. Um, uh, You know, one of one of my favorite writers, Chuck Wendig, he, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, you know, some people got on his case about how vocal he was. And he's like, look, this is me. You're following me. You're not following just my work. And, yeah. you know, and I'm, I firmly support that. I don't think that you need to lose your identity as a human being just because you have some sort of fan base or following. Um, whereas other people are really opposed to that. They think mm-hmm. that, oh, my gosh, you have to just be so professional because you can't possibly risk offending anybody that might be a buyer. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't know which, I mean, you seem awfully personable on, on Twitter. It doesn't seem like you're just, you know, being like, you're trying to shill your work. You just, oh, I hate people like that. Yeah. And I mean, I understand it because you have a book that you really believe in or a movie or whatever. But, and I'm, I will admit I am not the best person for promoting his own work. Most of the time I'm just on there interacting with people or goofing off or, Whatever, and occasionally they, oh, right, I, my book is available through iTunes. Go check it out. Hashtag shameless self promo tweet. And I just find that for me, it works a little bit better than just tweeting or Facebooking or, you know, updating my website with, here's the latest information about why you, sh- about buying my book or seeing my movie or whatever. Whereas I think it's more worthwhile to give people a reason to want to check out your work by being personal and personable and approachable and friendly and having interesting things to say and not just being a, a, like a, a promotional machine. Um, and I think that that's sort of the best way to uh, approach a book, whether it's mixtape or anything. I mean, if you find the person interesting and fun to talk to or communicate with or whatever, why wouldn't you be interested in checking out their work? Because, you know, I, I just like communicating with people, whether it's face-to-face, which is always better anyway, but online as well, just because I'm interested in other people's lives. I'm interested in the places they live. I'm interested in the, the movies they've seen. I'm interested in the restaurants they like and the, the, the vacations they've been on. I just find that kind of thing interesting because, you know, I, I've done all those things. I've done those things with friends and family, and 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 it's it's kind of almost reassuring despite all the craziness in the world that people still get together and hang out and whether they're meeting at cons or just hanging out in the backyard drinking beer and having a barbecue and you almost get a sense of community through an online type of interaction like that not not too much because I think there's still an element of um, you don't really know the person as well as you think you would just once you step out away from the computer and go, okay, well, yeah, I know there's a person on Twitter who I follow who lives in Cincinnati or something like that. And we've had some good interactions and communications. And in my case, some people have actually asked where they can get my work, get my books, whether they wanted to read mixtape or see a movie that I've written or something like that. Not because I've been tweeting out to them endlessly, go check out my book, go join my Facebook page. I mean, I'm not even on Facebook, so I'm not sure how that would work. I do have a Facebook page for mixtape, but, uh, you know, I think it's just the approach of just being yourself. And people will other latch on to that and like that or they won't. And if they have a problem with things you say, whether they're controversial or otherwise, and that just goes through the territory. You can't, uh, you can't go through life, whether it's online life or real life, worry that you're going to offend somebody. 
Yeah, I I agree because I mean it's you're just going to accept that. So it's, it's, it's going to happen. It's going one way to or the happen. Other. Someone is going to have an issue with something you said, and, and it could even be with you know with the content of your book or something. I mean, it could be it could be anything. Yeah. If you could have a scene where that pisses people off. I mean, there's plenty of video game developers that go through that. Where there's mm-hmm. like, you know outrage and hatred because of something that happens in a game. My question to you would be though, because with your podcast and your website and stuff, like, do you think it, 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 sometimes by being public on a, a website or a Twitter or whatever, that you almost, you feel like you run the risk of inviting that bad element a little in closer, where people all of a sudden feel like they're entitled to a piece of you? Um, I don't think I've really had much of that. Right. I mean, I've I've had a little taste of it here and there. Um, uh, it comes up a lot with costuming. That's yeah, that's what I mean because the, I, I when you yeah when you put on a costume, people say you have to expect bad comments and bad behavior from people. And I said no, I really don't. I think we're all human beings who make choices, mm-hmm. and I shouldn't have to expect bad behavior. I shouldn't have to yeah. expect to need. In fact, that's part of what the uh, the, the blog post that I'm about to. Mm-hmm to put up is is about um, because there's there was so much uh, this year in particular I don't know I just think we're more vocal about it and women aren't keeping quiet anymore no, but there's just no. so many convention harassment problems these days yeah that's that's been a real surprise it's really been a, a very very vocally discussed and yeah and I, of I, course I you know we have to wait for our knights in shining armor to come in and make a big deal out of it when guys like John Scalzi and uh, Jim Hines speak up about these things. People stop and listen because they're famous men. Yeah, and that's unfortunate because, first of all, I don't think that you know women cosplayers or comic book fans or whatever your gender or ethnicity is, whatever, I don't think you should be in a situation where you have to defend yourself against people whose behavior is indefensible. I mean, that, that's the one thing that's really surprised me about fandom nowadays. What I was saying earlier about you know, when I was a younger, a much younger man, and going to comic book conventions or sci-fi conventions or whatever, it said they weren't as big and as inclusive as they are now. And even when you hear you have people saying, "Oh, fake fangirls and stuff like that," I'm like, "Dude, do you even remember what it was like going to a comic book convention where the only girls you'd see would other be people who were at a table selling books or had been dragged there by their boyfriends or something like that?" and you know, by by virtue of the fact that it's con books and sci-fi and fantasy, which are all quote unquote geeky type pursuits, anyways. I mean, you're you're basically having these groups of people who behave the way I guess the the the, the jocks used to treat you when you were reading your con books in high school and stuff like that. It's it, it, it's it's a, a big enough tent that everyone should feel welcome and that you should not feel judged or victimized or anything like that. Right, and that's, you know, unfortunately that's what you will hear f- from anybody else who's been through it and a new person is just experiencing it for the first time is, well, you put your picture out there on the Internet or, yeah. well, you were walking around in a spandex thong. Yeah, but yeah. What's, what I'm kind of glad to see is that, you know, the, 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 the groups who do the victimizing being shamed by everybody and the, and the and the the people yeah I gotta agree been, with you there it's like been victimized it's like all the all the all the 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 guys and girls and particularly the girls saying uh, no we're we're gonna call you out on your BS and you know a lot of people on Twitter and Facebook but a lot of sites like uh, the Mary Sue are basically saying no we're not gonna sit down and, and take this exactly and you know we're we're we, we we go to these conventions and we're into this stuff because we like it and you know how how dare you you know, judge how we look at our costumes or the panels we want to go to or the books we want to read because, you know, it's, it's it's no coincidence that the most judgmental, you know, you said this is an adult-rated program, so the most judgmental pricks out there, I mean, they're, they're, they're not much, they're, they aren't anything special to look at themselves, you know. They're not the finest specimens of humanity either. Yeah, the, the Mary Sue um, is is one of the things that I referenced because yeah. of the um, attending Detroit fanfare for the first time right. and um, and also the Richmond, Virginia Comic-Con. And I was curious because all of this stuff on the Mary Sue and, um, you know, and they they basically culminate from, from all other blogs and stuff too, mm-hmm. happened uh, 
in New York and it's been going on all year, like I said. So I um, talked to my friend who's an editor, an assistant editor over there. I said, um, I said, oh, do you know anything about Detroit or Virginia? And she's like, no, just ask them. Mm-hmm. So I went on their websites and I looked around and I couldn't find any harassment policies at all. So I messaged them both through Facebook and just said, you know, hey, I'm just curious. You know, there's been all these problems going on. Do you have a harassment policy? Where can I find it? You know, where would people know about it that are attending? And um, both of the shows got back to me pretty quickly and said, no, they don't have anything, like, written out and posted. They just basically don't tolerate it. If somebody complains, they're booted out. I'm like, okay, well, I guess that's that's a policy, but it's not... It's not posted anywhere. There's nothing that says, you know, here's what you do. But it seems to be more out there now in the sense that people aren't standing for it. And I think you're you're starting to see some changes. And it's not going to happen as quickly as you'd like it to. But I think it's it's one of those things where if you keep the the, the con organizers and whatnot, if you keep their feet to the fire, they'll start instituting a policy like that. And I think, you know, you will have uh, them, them being a bit more aggressive in pursuing and dealing with people who are there at, at these conventions or wherever just to just to get a rise out of people and to treat people terribly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So at least you I ha- hope so. It's, it's, you know, it's, people are like you said, people are going to be dicks. That's, yeah, you know, it's it's unfortunate. Yeah, but they're a, they're they're a growing they're they're a a a a, a minority, and it's becoming less tolerable amongst people and eventually they'll go the way of the dodo and we'll all be much happier. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, uh, you know, it's just, it, it is a phenomenon how there could be 100 wonderful praising comments on something you post mm-hmm. and there'll just be one asshole. Oh yeah. And you will obsess about that. Yeah. You go, you son of a bitch. And you just be like, Oh my God, am I really, you know, am I really the hack or am I really, you know, Oh yeah, I mean, and that's, and that's something I know too. I mean, as I said, I, I am the writer of Stone Age Apocalypse, so I know it's like to get a bad review and be called a hack. <laughs> but you know, it was it was fun to make and everything. And I mean, I think you're naturally you're going to latch on to that one bit of negative press. I mean, of all of, of all the reviews, mixtape one got, I think nine out of ten were glowing, and one was kind of indifferent. Pass on it. Called it, you know, just didn't have anything nice to say about so naturally I obsessed on that one mixed and negative review before yeah. all the other ones came in. I went, oh, okay, things are fine. But I know what it's like. You don't, it only takes one negative comment or one person to kind of throw your whole day off. But, again, that is usually, I think, the good thing about it is that it is in the minority. And whether it's a con or, you know, a, 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 some comic book show or a sci-fi thing or wherever you're going, you know, the, the nice people far outweigh the negative ones. And that's just been my experience going to them as a fan and now going to them as a creator as well. I mean, everybody I got to meet at New York Comic Con was awesome. And I look forward to reconnecting with them again. Cool. Cool. Um, So before I let you go, let's get some basic information about how people can follow you on the Twitter and on the Twitter and website and stuff so that they can keep up with your releases and your convention schedules and all that stuff. Well, I'm usually on, as you well know, I'm usually on Twitter pretty much from the moment I get up to start work to the moment I turn off work and then I spend another way too many hours of it. And you can follow me on Twitter. I'm not Brad Abraham or at not Brad Abraham. And if you're interested in following mixtape, uh, Mixtape does not have a Twitter account, but uh, it does have a Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash mixtapecomic. And if you want to know a little bit more about me just as a writer, um, that would be my website, writeabraham.com. And you can find out about all my projects and my upcoming uh, appearances. I, I tend to do a lot of blogging about stuff that's completely unrelated to my work. Uh, again, getting back to that whole Brad is terrible at self-promotion thing. Um, but things about music and movies and just random casual observations, I try to update that fairly frequently. And why is your Twitter not Brad Abraham? Because there was some other guy named Brad Abraham who scored Brad at Brad Abraham, and the guy and the guy's he's got like a little egg icon. He's never on it, but. A jerk. He's probably just waiting he's for just me to join. Just a squatter on the Brad just, Abraham he's, name. He's been he's been he's been squatting on my good name. Yeah. So, but I've 
I've I have now embraced being not myself, not <laughs> Brett Abraham. So that's that's where you can find me. That's where I am most times because that kind of keeps me going during the day when I need a break to, from work just to kind of see what else is going on out there in the world. Perfect. All from the safety of home. <laughs> Well, that's delightful. Thank you for all your time, Brad. Thank you so much. Um, if you, uh, you know, hopefully I'll get to run into you somewhere along the line again. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm not too hard to find. I'm pretty, I'm, I'm pretty much online most of the most of my working day, and then there's shows and signings and whatnot. We're, we're neighbors by state, I guess. So. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully, you know. We'll be able to. Because I know how much you love coming into New York. I hate New York, but I would love to have you at Comic Fusion if we ever uh, can arrange that. I would love to go. All right. There's so many great things about it. That's great. Great. All right. Well, thanks a lot. And, of course, uh, guys, you can follow me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber and uh, at Amber Unmasked on Facebook. So, um, again, you can look for me at Detroit Fanfare and at the Richmond, Virginia Comic Con in November. Um my first time going to those shows so uh please uh be very kind to me because i will be a nervous wreck traveling and um you know uh, if you have any questions comments leave them in the feedback give us some good ratings because uh, we are on itunes and stitcher and uh hopefully it won't be too many weeks in between episodes this time but october is rather insane so thanks for listening everybody cheers <laughs>